Welcome listeners to this next episode um, of the podcast uh, that is related to the summer uh, program. Uh, and I have three important guests that have also been uh, part of the program. Um, can I maybe ask you to start with an introduction and we just go clockwise? Okay, lovely yeah. to be with you. I'm Stacy Johnson. I'm from Nottingham, the University of Nottingham. Uh, I'm a nurse and uh, an activist. Uh, my name is Michael Bradford. I'm from the University of Connecticut. I'm the Vice Provost for Faculty, Staff and Student Development and a Professor of Dramatic Arts. Awesome. My name is Naomi van Stapler. Um, I'm a Professor of Inclusive Education at the Hague University of Applied Sciences. I'm an anthropologist um, and I prefer to work in student-led ways. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for being here um, and having this conversation uh, with me. And what I want to centralize uh, as a host of this uh, episode is the conversation about diversity, inclusion, equity, anti-racism work um, and different other um, forms of um, anti-discrimination work in a broader sense. Um, so maybe Stacy, can I start with you to elaborate a little bit on the work that you do in the context of Nottingham and um, and why it is important that we do this work. I'll start with the second bit. Why is it important that we do the work? Because we are human and what we want, what we need as humans is to thrive, not just survive life, but to thrive um, in our work lives, in our whatever main endeavors are, whether it's education, to feel safe, to feel welcome. Uh, and so the work is important because we, the society needs people to be thriving for society to thrive, right? So the assumption that, you know, it's all okay if just one group is doing well, that's problematic for the world, right? So for me, inclusion, and, you know, I, I had this, I was having this conversation with my team and I kept saying, oh, inclusive growth, inclusive education, inclusive this, inclusive that. And I had to pause and just remind them that for me, even though I was using inclusive in front of every Thing, it was a sacred word for me, right? So I use it a lot, but it is a sacred word. I'm not throwing it around randomly, right? Mm. Um, and because when I when I say inclusion, and, and it was interesting yesterday in one of the sessions, somebody started talking about an idea which I thought I had made up, which was transformative inclusion. So it's not the institutional inclusion; it's transformative. And by that I mean inclusion where. We're not tolerating people. Tolerance is a low bar. Transformative inclusion is where we say, you know what? Difference is not a problem to be solved. Uh, we're not asking you to fit in. We're creating spaces in which everyone belongs. Um, and for me, when people feel they belong, they're at their best. Therefore, organizations and society will thrive. And unless you can tell me the world is working, which it is not, mm -hmm then we need a different way. And for me, that different way is transformative inclusion, where people are absolutely thriving, where organizations are really aimed at helping everyone to thrive, not just specific groups. Mm, so yeah. that's why I think the work that we're all doing is important. Yeah. So transformative inclusion as a new standard, yeah. instead of um, kind of portraying inclusion as something performative yeah, to some exactly, extent. Exactly. 
Okay. Beautiful. Can I maybe ask you as next? I think it's been said. Um, I think Stacy covered the bases. I will piggyback on that to say that I don't think socially, historically, around the world that we've ever really heard all the voices of the people that make up the different societies that we have been in. And I think we don't know the power of positive change and movement until all those voices are present in the space, not allowed to be in the space because they belong in the space. And I think the work we do is about um, sometimes convincing, but sometimes helping folks to understand what we have left off the table because we have not allowed some voices to be a part of a particular or of any conversation, right? And so, you know, part of my job is, um, or part of my portfolio was an initiative called the Life Transformative Education Initiative, which is why the transformative word really rings so true to me, because the idea is that we want to affect the agency, identity, and purpose of every student in the university, uh, undergraduate and graduate. And what is the purpose of affecting how they see themselves in the world and how they go out to become world citizens, do the kind of work that they want to do on a daily basis, but also what they bring to their communities and their families and their, and the society as a whole, why would we be a part of that to send them out into the world and then negate Mm. their voice and their participation? So it's, it's not only necessary work, it's absolutely crucial work. We are um, way behind the eight ball in so many ways. We've got a lot of catching up to do. Um, But I think that's why we're all in this conversation here and engaged in this work when we go back to our institutions, because otherwise um, the learning that happens, the environment that is there, the ability for students to um, understand themselves and affect themselves in the world is impossible, quite honestly if we don't do this, so. Yeah, yeah. So it's absolutely crucial, right, to mm. do this work. All right. Naomi? Yeah, maybe to also build on the previous speakers, very eloquently uh, put, um, I think the urgency of, of these times are characterized by all these crises that come together even more uh, maybe than ever. And I'm saying maybe because we may not know, but I think that the crisis really puts education in a very, very tight spot. Either we change the way we think and do, or we perish. And I think we're at that critical stage. So if we say we... we, So I think we have been uh, sort of um, uh, indoctrinated to believe that we're individuals. Uh, and that uh, human beings are sort of outside nature and then, you know, that sort of separation between humans and nature has led to other separations. So difference became separations and power has been assigned to these differences and race is the, the sort of the, 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 the underlying um, um, logics that have really divided people and, and legitimated exploitation, so colonization, and where, which was like the ground uh, work for the or the, the the foundation for the colonial project, 
Um, and that colonization and that exploitation, of course, continues. So how can we counter this exploitation in our education? So we must engage in anti-racist pedagogies built on solidarity and relational uh, identification. So we, we are relational beings. Um, with self and non-self entities, and I think that's where we really need to to uh, start start from. That should be our point of departure. Um, but we've been sort of uh, um, indoctrinated to believe that we're individuals and we're kind of in power of our own. We're autonomous and we should be self-reliant. We've been talking about that in in different sessions uh, during uh, these days together. Um, so I think it's it's critical. It's uh, it's really hard work because. That indoctrination is quite entrenched and, and, and pervasive in all spheres of the university. But I also think the university is the place where we can change this thinking because we have the, the intellectual tools at hand and we have now this, 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 these collaborations that are made possible through the summit and, and our future collaborations to help each other in this um, uh, and then also put the thinking into action and action into thinking. I think that's where... Uh, the relationality is layered. Um. Yeah. Can I ask for a clarification? Because you positioned the self and non-self. And for the listeners, I can maybe relate to that in, in some sense, but I don't know if I understand it correctly. Can you help me out um, in describing what do you mean with, with those um, those differences that you would well, see it's, there? It's even very easy. So, for instance, we... Non-self entities are is everything that we might not regard as selves. So maybe if we say selves are human beings, there are other ways, right, to human and beyond human selves. I mean, there are different ways to think about an us or an ever-expanding us, but we're all contingent. Uh, so non-selves, maybe non-sentient entities or maybe the air we breathe, we're not autonomous. We rely on, mm. we wouldn't survive without air more than a few minutes. We have a nurse here who knows. <laughs> and it's very odd that we- Thank God, yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and this actually, if we, we can look also at our history and at our, uh, the way we organize society in a very different way, um, and, and, and history has different examples, but also right now in the world, we have different examples, solidarity, is the foundation of how we can re should and can relate, yeah. uh, but I think we've we've lost that. It's, it's become inconceivable, mm. and and therefore it's become this competition, and that that competition is sort of legitimized by this idea of separation that we're separate from each other. So difference, of course, is not the problem. That was already, uh, but we the 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 way difference um, uh, ha is turned into separation so separate entities from each other self non selves different selves so us them that now becomes a problem so we need to counter that type of thinking everything we do is implicated in each other mm. so also kind of building on all three of your perspectives is basically stating we are part we are one we are also part of nature we are connected but um to some extent in our society in this moment we see that there's a disconnection right and can i maybe ask you um and stacy can i start with you again on this what is your drive in in doing this where does that 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 um 
that journey come from also to build on connecting, yeah. uh, reconnecting again for some things um, and, and building on those connections again, even though they were broken because of the, the colonial project, if I understand you correctly, yeah. right? And I don't know if this understands your question, but when Naomi was talking, what came to my mind is this is why we need not just inclusion, but this is why we need a different kind of inclusion, right? Not just compliance with the law, right? So we're referring to the colonial project. I am, I'm, I'm in Nottingham. I live in the United Kingdom. I'm the descent of a slave because I'm originally from Trinidad. And so I am disconnected from my ancestry. I only know a couple of generations back. I'm one of those people who I haven't gone looking for where I came from, right? But I've become a big fan of a Southern African philosophy. So not South Africa only, but Southern African states like Zimbabwe and so on, which maybe I came from one of those places, which is why I'm attracted to it. And it's the notion of Ubuntu. And it is a whole philosophy. So people know the short word, which a uh, short kind of phrase, which is I am. Because we are. Because we are. Connectedness, the self, the non-self, however we frame that, right? And the beauty of Ubuntu is it's a whole quite complex, it's got its own beliefs about reality and its own beliefs about the world. So what other people would talk about as ontology, epistemology and everything, right? Um, so I say hello to you, to somebody who's living in the world, in the Ubuntu world view, and their response in the language would be, I see you. Not high back, but I see you, right? Um, and so, and then another shorthand is, was it you, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go yeah. far, go together, right? So, and if, if we go back to embracing all, decentering Westernness, decentering specific um, ways of thinking that are dominating the whole world, then I think we go back to connectedness, right? Uh, and, you know, I say Ubuntu, I suspect if you've got people from South America, Aztecs, people from, you know, Southern India, they will have versions of that. And it's not accidental that every society has a so, a, an idea about togetherness and connectedness, right? So that's what drives me is this need for connectedness and togetherness. Um, what I'd really like to see is for us seeking that, not just in one colonial, post-colonial, Western dominant type of framework. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I hear some thoughts coming up. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the beauty of being in this space with colleagues, right? Because I often have these moments of epiphany um, because a piece of language or an explanation has um, taken me back to a space that I had maybe forgot about. And I think Naomi talks about the human and the non-human, and it makes me really think about... Um, the negation of humanity, right? That when we find ourselves in these colonialized systems or slavery, whatever the case may be, it is about a negation of humanity. You know, Thomas Jefferson, I need to measure your, your head. Um, and then the kind of um, discrepancy because I'm also going to make a baby with you. Um, but it's a negation of, of humanity, right? And so first, the people that have had to survive that are figuring out how to come back to their own humanity. It's not an easy thing to do because you have been 
you're in that system as well. You've been colonized or, you know, the, the, the mind is, can't escape that, that issue. So you've got to do the work to come back. And then you come to society and say, okay, I am, I'm actual, I'm an actuality. I'm here. You know, there's an opportunity for togetherness here. And it's, yes, we can be together, but assimilate. You'd be together in the way that I define being, being together, you know? And I think now we're having these conversations about, and what brings me to this is my lived experience, quite honestly, but now we're in that place to say, well, you know, Malcolm X used to say, we're not looking for the melting pot. We're looking for a Caesar salad. Mm. Like, I mean, I want to be in the bowl with you, but I'm an olive. I don't want to taste like a tomato. Mm. Right. And so, but, but all of that is going to nourish me. Right. So how do I get back to the place where we've got a togetherness, but can be pluralistic and, and support each other, you know, inform each other, be informed by each other, understand what community is. There's some individualism, but there's always a balance between individualism and the community if the community is to, is to survive. So I think that's what brings, I think certainly that's what brings me to this work because I, I recognize the strength of community. Um, I want community to thrive. I've got children, I've got grandchildren. I'd like to, for them to be in a space where the community is, is thriving. I particularly find myself in an academic setting, right? That's the world I'm trying to impact. Um, I want those students of color to leave out the door, understanding their own actuality and agency in the world and their identity. Um, and that to some degree they demand to be a part of that community, right? And to bring what they have to that citizenship, you know, to that to that community. So, um, Ubuntu? Ubuntu. Ah, right, that's beautiful. Yeah. Right? That is, yeah. that is absolutely beautiful because it's not, it's not a one-for-one -one translation to a thing, right? It's, um, it's just a bigger idea about how we operate in the world in, in community, right? With decency and respect. So, I think, for me, that's been the beauty of this week, uh, last week, the day that we spent, a couple days we spent together in this week, is kind of having these uh, epiphany, moments of epiphany, where I am reminded of maybe something in, in my universe that um, I had forgotten about or had not defined in a certain kind of way. Thank you, thank you. Um, and, and that's what brings me to this, to this work. I think I know myself. Um, but I show up in these spaces and I leave having a better sense of myself. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Already to some extent, you know, changing the narrative about the work that we do. Right. Oftentimes it's being uh, set in stone in policies and, you know, we, we need to make and, and build on programs and initiatives. But basically it's also about having a vision and a motive and a reason uh, and a search for something bigger than, you know, your own journey to some extent, right? Thank you so much for sharing that. And Naomi, what is your uh, reason why you do this work? Why are you here doing what you do? I think in very short terms, because I don't believe I am an autonomous I, and I feel profoundly responsible for, and I think that's what community is about. So that term solidarity is a very heavy term for me. It's very laden with responsibilities, spirituality, 
uh, and ethics, and 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 these cannot actually be un, untangled. So I I feel I'm really responsible for if students are excluded if we talk about a specific like pedagogical encounter and students experience exclusion I feel I'm responsible for that all the more because I'm positioned as white and as someone in a majoritized position I do think I have a responsibility to dismantle that majoritization to counter any type of oppression um, and uh, that is something that other, otherwise life does not have meaning because we will only have people surviving and people living of the survival of others, but also in, I think, unethical and, and non-thriving ways, right? Because you can't thrive if your, if your existence is based on the exploitation of others. So if, and I mean, that's a very profound, for me, a very profound uh, uh, sort of lived uh, ethics that I'm, that I'm trying to uh, bring into practice inadequately. And therefore, I also need to be very open and humble and ask also my students but, and the people and colleagues and everyone that I work with, like, be open to me, call me out. And we need to do this with each other. We're learning together but let's not pretend that we know what we're doing because we're all just figuring it out. We really don't know. And I think that's a weird, because we have this sort of magical thinking around knowledge. We have a magical thinking about policy terms that you just mentioned. There's so much invested in certain terms. No, they're just tools and they're inadequate tools. We were talking about the limitations of concepts today. And yeah, they are. I mean, come on, we can just, I mean, they're, they're very profound spiritual concepts that are, like Ubuntu is a very spiritual, philosophical, uh, metaphysical concept that, um, and it's it's not even, con it's like a whole world. So, but I think for certain concepts, they don't have that depth, they don't have that lived. So we can we can work with them, but we can also criticize them and, and unpack them. And maybe we were talking about, some might, have their due dates like diversity mm -hmm. definitely has its due date um and and we need to move on we need to move on and then figure out together what kind of language maybe we need to develop a new entire new language for this for to also counter the world and think differently imagine differently what we need to think and do now yeah so sometimes the question is always um you know why are we doing this right so and also the question should be, are we doing the right things that we need to? And if I hear you um, speak about this, this is a lot about, you know, finding a new way to reflect upon yourself, to self-identify, uh, to, to kind of self-identify, uh, to be aware of how the system around you sometimes identifying you uh, and is impacting your life and has created throughout history specific starting points for specific groups in our society and also that we need to be mindful of you know acknowledging the colonial project as you mentioned that that has been a root of um, um, of effects that that we still see today um, so I'm also curious to to hear uh, a little bit more maybe about how do you see um, um, basically the colonial project, right? If we talk about that as, as such, and maybe to understand it a little bit better also to define it maybe together or redefine it in a way. 
Um, how do you see uh, the colonial project back in higher education today? So we talk about, you know, different, different settings, but how do we see that uh, back, right? Yeah. What is the journey? And this is really important because so often, so for me, the colonial project is very much tied, tied to slavery, right? And for, for, not for everybody, is it, right? And, and so often the question is, well, it was 300 years ago, pull yourself together. What? Um, but this is an, it's, it's an ongoing thing, right? So a couple of years ago, the, the United Kingdom HMRC, so it's, what was it, the, the tax people, they tweeted, oh, wow, guys, amazing. Today, we all contributed to ending slavery because we paid off, finally, the loan that the UK government had taken to pay off slave owners yeah. as compensation for um, releasing slaves, right? So me, the descendant of a slave came to the realization that my tax dollars, I am getting quite emotional about mm. it now. So I was doubly redeeming my ancestors. I had already paid mm. no generational wealth. A couple of generations had worked for free, beaten, murdered, all that. And I was paying to redeem them already, a double. Um, and that shook me to my core. Anyway, so it's not in the past, right? Mm. Because up until two years ago, my tax dollars, and not just paying to redeem, but I was paid, the rich who are now saying, you are not as good as, um, my money's, <laughs> so anyway, that blew my mind, right? So it's not mm. a past thing. Mm -hmm. How does a colonial project play out in real life today? So I said I'm a nurse, right? Mm. So yes, I'm doing equality and diversity work very kind of um, ideologically and so on, but I am a nurse. I teach nurses. I train nurses who will be looking after people at their most vulnerable. So if this colonial project is ongoing, and for example, our curriculum, what we teach student nurses is colonized, it means that we are colonizing not just what we're teaching them, the content, we're colonizing their minds. Bob Marley, emancipate yourself from mental slavery, right? If we're colonizing the nurse, that means we're colonizing the patients because that nurse is going to people at their most vulnerable and saying, you're not good enough. You don't feel pain. You're a black woman. So in the United Kingdom, as a black woman, I'm four times more likely to die in childbirth than you or Naomi mm. as white women, right? And that's because the, the mind of nurses and, you know, substitute doctors, substitute physiotherapists, substitute any other people providing services, lawyers, whatever. They're calling out because they believe something about this person in front of them that actually is killing people, mm. right? So for me, this colonial project is not a theoretical thing. That's life or death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it's it's a practical imperative. It's we're in a state of emergency to decolonize. It's not just we're not just it's not you know how people say oh decolonizing is about references and which authors you use and all that. It's about people's beliefs and attitudes about the person in front of them who is getting a service or gain getting care or being educated or whatever you know. So for me, this colonial project not a project. It's life or death. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. 
Who's next? Well, I'm, I'm looking at my colleague over here because we don't have the colonial project, but I think critical race theory and all of the issues in the United States around the understanding of it, the teaching of it, the um, propagation of it, I think that's a, a correlative for us, uh, critical race theory. Um, you know, and, and today I just wanted to make sure I had a good understanding of it. We were able to have a conversation you know, about it. But I have always thought about this as a, as a, as a disconnect. And I have to say the, the earlier conversation here, I think is actually appropriate when we think about um, history and the, how people have defined critical race theory, which is, is inappropriate, but their intention really is to, to disconnect um, a people from their history, disconnect their culpability or responsibility for that history um, and and not take the level of responsibility that, that we will all need in order to move forward into a pluralistic space. And as Stacy is just saying, it's not a yesterday thing. It's not a historical thing, quote unquote, the way we might think about another time, another place, another people, right? We are all living in the soup you know, that was made at that particular point in, in time. Um, and if we're not going to address it, it's not going to go away. But all of that to say that the necessity of using that as a framework to do the work that we do in the university, I think my understanding of it was somewhat lined up to where um, people think about it, but not totally. But I've had some wonderful conversations during this particular conference. And I feel like it is, um, it's necessary to understand the, I'll use the term again, the, the analogy of the water that we swim in, right, is, is, is of a particular makeup, right? There's mm -hmm. a specific amount of chlorine in that water. There's a specific amount of whatever it is that you put in into water to make it um, look like you can swim in that, but you can't drink it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think in my particular position, understanding the systems and the structures that are at play that affect first generation students, racially uh, ethnic minoritized students, the way they move through the world in invisible ways, the world of the university in invisible ways is, is a crucial understanding to me so that I can affect their journeys. But it's also crucially necessary for them to understand um, how the systems and the structures are affecting how they move through the world as well. And I think it's only when we come to some understanding about those systems can we then start to think about how we dismantle them. When they're invisible and we're not thinking about them, we could get the impression that's simply the way the world works. Um, but we have to know better. We have to understand better. So why is it crucial or necessary? Because it's, we're living in it at this particular moment. And if we don't recognize it, understand it, figure out how to deconstruct it, we will, we will continue. Right. I mean, and it's it, because it's systematic and it's structural, you know, we can nibble around the edges. We can do some good work around the edges. You know, we can, we can affect identity agency and purpose in some kind of way, but we, we are actually allowing the system, when we do that, we're actually, we're actually supporting the system, mm. quite honestly, if we're not involved in direct challenging of the, a challenge to the, 
to the system. So is it necessary work, crucial work? Yes, that's why I'm here doing this work. And, you know, to be frank and honest, I was a professor for many years and it never crossed my mind how the system was working mm. because I didn't see its direct effect upon me. Um, and so it took a little while for me to come around to say, I may not see its direct effect upon me, but it is happening, right? And I've got to get a handle on that so I can support my, support my students. So. Yeah. So also kind of hearing you reflect upon the need to know where we come from, to be able to understand where we need to go from here, right? To kind of acknowledge the next steps that we need to take. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, Naomi. So the, um, I think what is very important about, and I know the colonial project is, is a weird way to say it, but I mean it as a project to legitimize a particular political economic system. It's, very, it, it's based on extraction uh, to the, in the most brutal sense of the word of extraction. Um, and it was, and it is still based on extraction. So there is a direct continuity um, throughout, let's say, the four or five hundred years. Um, and I think the the racialized capitalist system that's in place is a clo is colonial, and colonialism as a political system may have ended in a particular way but not in many other ways, and actually has um, extended into imperialism uh, and also has permeated uh, our belief systems and everything that informs society. So in that sense, it's a life and death matter, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really also appreciate what, what you were saying, Michael, about it being uh, sometimes invisible to some people or some high up people that may, or not high up, but pe some people do not see it, who, not do, who may not live the violence, uh, who are not burned by it. Let's say that's what Saran Stewart said, something like that, who's no, who are not burned by it, may not see it. So it being an extractive, hugely uh, violent, it's, it's extractive violence means that it, the education system is not separate from society. It's actually, it permeates the education system and actually reproduces it. And um, right now we live in a, in a neoliberal age of capitalism where racism and the extractive forces are, um, are kind of cloaked in particular language. So meritocracy, uh, self-reliance, uh, you know, the autonomous individual. And it's all to sort of um, make us believe in, in, a, in sort of a fairy tale world where there's equality, quote unquote. Well, and that's why I, I always appreciate, you know, from equality, you go to equity, from diversity, you go to inclusion. But actually, well, if we now go to anti-racist politics or anti-racist pedagogy or anti-racist, then at least we go to the, to the heart of the matter, which is dehumanization of people all the other dehumanizations that are at play are all connected. But the racist uh, logics that are at play are the most, um, I would say, pervasive and the most violent. And therefore we need to, if we address these and we counter them, we dismantle them, then we also have 
dismantle the others. I really believe that. So there's a connection in the way that you look at this. Um, um, basically, the state of being in this moment, in this reality, this society, in this moment, um, that it's that it is connected, right? And that to some extent we need to be mindful also of how we position ourselves in that process. And I hear you speak about, you know, um, the effects of colonization, but also your process in kind of deconstructing that. You called, um, or basically you, you spoke about the term decolonization of the mind as well, Stacey. So can I, can I, um, can you help me in understanding and, and sharing also with the listeners what that means for you and how does that, um, how does that came into being for you in this process? And maybe, you know, as a next phase, what can people learn from that? So how does decolonization of the mind um, became something that you um, could embrace or could see or could live through? Um, so I think I would draw on another idea that I'm a big fan of, which is cultural humility, right? And of course, culture in its broadest sense. So any group with shared values or characteristics. So it could be the subculture of being disabled, the subculture of being queer, the subculture of being poor, the subculture of being whatever. And um, the idea of cultural humility, which is not the same as cultural competence. So cultural competence for me is an ongoing thing. You can never be fully culturally competent, right? But you can be culturally humble, right? Because it, it's a magic bullet, right? It leaves you open to be constantly searching, right? You are infinitely teachable. You, you accept that there will always be things that you don't know. It's another Ubuntu idea. Lack of knowledge is not the problem. It's not wanting to know, right? In the Ubuntu worldview, right? Therefore you are forgiving. In fact, seeking knowledge is seen as good, right? So you're not then, if you're culturally humble, you don't have to be frightened of saying, I don't know, I'm not sure. You, you start from the assumption that you're missing something, right? Because you are only you, right? Um, and so for me, decolonizing my mind is about understanding that as a black immigrant woman, I'm missing what the disabled person is experiencing. I'm missing what the non-cis heterosexual person is experiencing and that the common enemy is the privileged. We are not each other's enemy. And therefore, you know, decolonial, you know, anti-racism benefits women. Anti-racism benefits disabled people because the, the enemy is not the immigrant. The immigrant, you know, the enemy of the working class is not the immigrant. The enemy of the working class is the same enemy of the disabled, the, it is the privilege. And it's not the white, because remember we're not saying every white person is racist. We're saying that whiteness is a particular type of problem, right? It's privilege, it's richness, it's all of that, right? And, and for me, decolonizing the mind and it is about that realization. It's not about, actually, I don't even think it's just about anti-racism. I think it's about anti-privilege, right? Um, and, and so for me, and again, that notion of submitting myself, being a culturally humble. So the culturally humble person, weirdly, 
centers the other. So that's not the same as othering people. So othering is about pushing people who are different away. Centering the other is about trying to move closer, trying to always understand the other perspective, right? And for me, that's the magic bullet in this whole decolonizing the mind thing, right? Mm -hmm. Constantly seeking, recognizing that learning is the point, right? So therefore you can make yourself vulnerable. You can openly say, I don't know, teach me, tell me. I might get it wrong. Forgive me if I do. Help me to get it right, you know? Um, And for me, that's the magic approach. Yeah, yeah. And Michael, how is that for you, the decolonizing the mind embodiment or process or state of being? How do you want to define it? Yeah, I I, I will say that it's been a personal journey to a great degree. Um, And I will say that having the language of... um, of identity, having the language of knowing myself, having the language of understanding my history and my positionality in, in, in the world is is really n- not a difficult thing to, to do, right? We can learn that language. We can see that language modeled in, in other places. And it, it, as schizophrenic as it sounds, masks some of the internal kind of work that... Um, needs to needs to be done. So I, I will say for me, it has been a bit of a personal journey to figure out and come to and understand and challenge who, who is my authentic self, you know, in the space. And, and to literally have to say to myself, you need to make sure that you are intentionally bringing your authentic self to the space. To be quite honest with you, and it's a it's a mental verbalization to kind of get myself, you know, ready to be thinking about that in the space and not allowing me to slip into sitting back or um, not not being verbal about a situation where I think, you know, folks are being undone, especially students, you know, are being impacted in some negative negative ways. And I, it, it took me a while to kind of understand if I'm not bringing my authentic self to the space, I'm not supporting students in the way that they should be supportive. I could come up with a million excuses why I wouldn't be supporting students, especially students of color in the way that they needed to be, that they need to be supported. So um, it's an ongoing journey. It is an intentional journey. It's an intentional conversation. Um, And you could probably do the work, right, of, anti-racist teaching or your pedagogy or um, structure systems programs initiatives blah 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 you could probably do that work but there's something that's missing in your humanity I think if you are having that difficulty and understanding that you have to navigate that space if you're going to come to your own authentic self right so you're sitting in a quiet room alone at the end of the day you know who are you having a conversation with right um, so I have to say it's been it's been a personal journey. I'm, I'm once again listening, you know, to my colleagues and Stacy, who is um, uh, amazing, and um, <laughs> loving the the idea of um, this humbleness, right? That actually centers the 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 other. I think I must have known this on some intuitive level, but I've never heard it verbalized in that in that way. 
Um, and so I really appreciate another way of intentionally thinking about, you know, who I, who I am in the, who I am in the world and that, um, it has felt dangerous to be my authentic self, mm. you know, in some spaces before and, um, scary, you know, but, but there was some conversation earlier in, in the, in the conference about, you've got to be ready to give something up. You've got to be ready to, to lose something. Right. Um, and you're going to have to make a choice. It, me personally, for me personally, you know, making a choice between being my authentic self or, or keeping this job or keeping this position, right? Which one is more important to me at the end of the, at the, end of the day, more important to me and vis-a-vis than the, the students that I want to support, you know, at the end of the day. So it's been a lot of in, internal work. For me, but I think I'm in that space of, of, of an humbleness that brings the other into the spotlight. I think that I'm working on being in that space intuitively, you know, in another kind of a way. And so I appreciate the language, the language around that. Yeah. So. Thank you so much also, Stacy, for um, bringing that into the conversation. So having, uh, to some extent, a new uh, frame of reference and also um, a new language to, to talk about these, uh, these topics. So it is a, um, a journey of self-searching, soul-searching, who you are, how you reflect upon yourself um, and what it means to get rid of those thoughts that, you know, have been created for us, uh, not necessarily by us. And Stacey, if I understand you correctly, you also position and decolonization of the mind as a work that we all need to do, even though we might be white and not be impacted in the same way by, by racism um, and, and, and to a different degree. Um, so Naomi, I am also really curious to hear your thoughts on this. How did your process go in relation to decolonization of the mind? Um, how do you work through that or embody that or, um, reflect upon that? I think it's most of all work that white people should do. Whiteness is characterized by a lack of humility. Um, if we would, you know, if you want to say whiteness, what what would it characterize its entitlement it's it's uh, a particular idea of knowledge it's about centering yourself um it's about not taking not giving space but there's also this weird and i i again say this term magical belief that in absolute certainty and i think humility is a step towards staying with infinite uncertainty and I think that's what decolonizing the mind uh, might point at and I'm saying might point at because I'm not sure I'm very deliberate at being completely insecure about who I am uh, where I fit what kind of effect I have in my interactions with people and non-people and I think that is um, there, there are many reasons why I, I grew up doing that. Uh, none of them are, I think, very interesting for this moment, but I think one um, is um, identifying as queer. I also did not fit in the lesbian scene or in the gay scene, and I, I was really resistant towards 
that type of labeling and categorizing and this sort of oppositional logics of dissent, uh, that really rubbed me the wrong way when I when I came to the realization like, oh, I also don't fit here. Oh, I also don't fit here. Like what? And in anthropology, there's in ethnographic work, you immerse yourself fully in a context as much as you can, of course. I mean, given the limits of your positionality and how you're read by others and intersubjectivity and so on. But there's a beautiful uh, exercise that, that's part of that, which is make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Mm. And and when you start to do that, you end up in in that place of infinite uncertainty and infinite possibility. And that for me was oh, this is what queer means. And then I understand there is, there, there, the queer resonates to decolonization in particular ways. Of course, different histories, different political struggles, but there, there are ways that they're, they're aligned. And I, I appreciated what uh, was said before about, it's not just about anti-racism, it's about, you mentioned privilege, I would say maybe anti-oppression. Um, but I think in the Dutch context, and I think it's because m- many listeners might come from the Dutch context, I do think... I was quite intentional saying anti-racism because in the Netherlands there is a, um, a, a very dominant reluctance to use the word race and to actually dilute any type of work, Jedi work. Um, mm. Sorry, I love that abbreviation. Um, <laughs> I'm from that generation. <laughs> With, um, um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. You wanted to respond to something, Stacey? Yeah, it's not anti. Yeah, it's not anti. Sorry, and then uh, no, no, no. so it's anti-oppressive, but it's also um, uh, we need to be intentional about racism because it's diluted just by focusing on maybe queer emancipation or uh, gender emancipation. So in the in the Dutch context, I do think if we're intentional about anti-racism, the other anti-oppressive work will also be part of that mm. but because right now it's 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 taken up all the space and there's no space for anti-racist work almost because people are afraid of it people do not are not willing to do the, the political will to do the work and recognize what it entails mm. is is lacking one of the challenges is also to some extent that we haven't really seen in the Dutch context at least um, an approach that is doing justice when we talk about women's issues or gender issues or LGBTQIA plus issues it's not necessarily catered towards also different communities right so it's also still focusing a wide western perspective and embodiment of that uh, work so I I, I really I, I realize that that's an important different approach in anti-racism work could do more justice to those different um, intersections than what we see right now. That's kind of your plea, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to go out of order and jump in because these they're, they're driving me crazy. <laughs> that that, that the, these narratives, the, the, the quote-unquote a white black narrative is reductive, first of all, yeah. Um, and so how many people are left out of that particular conversation and no longer are you, you know, who you are as a human being and your uniqueness, you, are you able to bring that to the, to the conversation? But it's such a powerful narrative, right? It's, it's really a powerful narrative and it doesn't matter where you fall on that black, black, white 
you know, um, spectrum, you, you are going to be impacted by that, by that narrative. Right. And so the work to be done, of course, I want to make sure that my, you know, racially minoritized students are getting the support that they need in order to realize their passions, their dreams, and, you know, all the things about who they are in the world, you know, but it's absolutely necessary, right, for the, for the quote unquote white students, right? Mm. Um, e- even if I'm not focusing the work on them in particular at that, at that very moment, they're going to be impacted if we can disrupt that narrative, mm right? In a way that may be scary. And, and I should say faculty and staff as well, in a way that's going to be worrisome, anxious making, but will be necessary for their survival as a human being. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's the reductive nature that, which is purposeful, the reductive nature of that conversation disallows those other voices, attempts to disallow those other voices to be, to be in the space. And ultimately we're all oppressed. And that's what these binaries, these essentialized binaries do. So the work of decolonizing is constant decentering, decentering, deessentializing, deessentializing, constantly questioning how are these structures operating to other particular groups to even manifest these groups and then control them. And I think that's what also post-colonial studies actually have really brought into view in, in subaltern studies and so on. And I think this is what we actually have the tools at hand to do this work. And at the same time, we, do it, we need to acknowledge the, the material effects of the current systems of power and how they violate all these differently positioned bodies, especially black bodies. Um, and I, I really find it really difficult, and this may be a question to you, so, Josephine, <laughs> what your view is on why is it so difficult for people to acknowledge that, especially people in majoritized position? I really, we're all living in very in, uncertain, I mean, life is fragile. Life is, we, we've been also, that's been also a sort of a running thread. It's a very spiritual running thread to, throughout this conference as well. It's like, why is it so difficult for us to acknowledge this uncertainty and just face it and deal with it and then connect to our humanity? Because we're all in the same space here, even if we don't know how to define the space. I think in relation to your question, um, what I, at least what I see is that a lot of my white peers... Um, don't identify as white because they are not aware of the fact that they are white. Because the system and everything around them, so things that we read, the things that we see, the people that we meet, most oftentimes are white or are centering, you know, whiteness as the standard. Um, So I think that the awareness about our positionality as white people is lacking. Um, And that also means that, you know, that system is kind of reproducing those same mechanisms that reinforce those ideas around white superiority. Um, It means that we are not challenged in a way that kind of acknowledges that there are, that not necessarily whiteness is the norm or heterosexuality is the norm or, 
being secular is the norm or Christianity is the norm, no matter how you want to define it or being able-bodied is the norm, but that in fact reality is showing us that diversity is the norm and pluralism is the norm. And even though our society is changing and it has always been, you know, diverse, um, I guess the realization that this society is only working for some of us and not for all of us is hard to see if it's working for you. Right. So as, as Saran also um, mentioned this, and I, I realized that just having one account encounter as a white person with a person of color or someone that challenges your worldviews is not enough. It's just not enough. Or so, watching one movie is just not enough. And I see the changes happening in people that, you know, have people around them, um, specifically people of color or black people that are willing to do the work to share those reflections of, you know, this is my reality and it's very different from yours. Um, and I also understand, you know, that that is the case because I think it's, it must be exhausting to always kind of be in that state of not being able to trust someone automatically. And as a white person, I'm not used to having that feeling of being distrusted. So this, it's, it's just those challenges in having different lived experiences make, make it really hard to really understand the gravity of it, how, how it is in fact impacting all of us. That this also says something and centering white superiority is the norm, that it also says something about our humanity, right? Because what does it say about the humanity of white people that are dehumanizing other people? It dehumanizes so the white people. Yeah. I am because we are. It's only in uh, if you recognize my humanity that yeah. I see you. It's, you know, this is why. And, and yeah. I was in a, in a talk where I was like, yeah, saying, oh, I really love Paolo Frey. This is a, an amazing Brazilian educator, the critical pedagogy guy. And it was a, an Ubuntu scholar. And he said, yeah, but that's still post-colonial. Ubuntu's post, 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 post-colonial. Right. So there's even <laughs> further we have to go. And, and, and I, I just... You know, everything you're saying, humanity, um, uh, awareness and all that is encompassed in Ubuntu philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. magic bullet, I tell you. <laughs> so it is also kind of challenging um, the way that we look at the world, the way that we look at ourselves, but also challenging that system that is that has created and is constantly creating that reality. And it's... Um, Maybe also uh, a good question, if that's all right with you, to wrap this up, um, is what do we have to offer in terms of guidance for people that are listening to, the, to this podcast episode and that maybe want to start somewhere? Um, maybe because they work in higher education um, and want to support students um, or they do research and they want to reflect upon their se themselves um, uh, in a critical way or... So maybe it's activists that we meet on the street that want to, you know, build alliances and, and, and make societal change happen and a reality. But what is, maybe that's the last question for this podcast episode. What is a tip that we can offer our listeners that want to do this, this type of work? Me first. <laughs> <laughs> um, whoever would like to start. <laughs> um, so... The, uh, 
These two will be unsurprised to know what I'm going to talk about. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say, um, you know, and, and I've done lots of different types of work, pieces of research and so on. But one of the ideas, one of the, I don't know what you call it, activities, interventions that I'm seeing a lot of promise with is deploying an idea called reverse mentoring, but specifically for inclusion, right? So reverse mentoring has been around for a while. It was first in General Electric where new graduates mentored more senior executives around using the internet, right? So it's often been used for young people kind of to help leaders with innovation, transporting and so on. Um, I've started using it more deliberately to help anybody who is in a position where they say, I don't have power to mentor somebody in the more powerful group. So black students reverse mentoring white vice chancellors, um, uh, a member of staff who's quite junior, who's got a disability, reverse mentoring uh, an able-bodied person. Now it's not just teaching, uh, it is helping the leader to develop their cultural humility. It is saying, I am the mentor, I'm in the driver's seat as the more junior person, the person who's from a group that has less power. A, listen to me. <laughs> Pause, right? Listen to me. My perspective is different to yours. I'm not saying that your perspective is wrong, but my, mine is different. But also having, giving these junior people, people from less um, powerful groups, the power to challenge because they're in the mental role, right? They're in the leading role. Um, and it's also about disrupting the normal power dynamic. It's about making the leader go onto uncomfortable unfamiliar ground it's about saying let me tell you my story but it's not trauma tourism i expect you to act not to fix my life but to act on the structures the systems right uh, and we're finding a lot of leaders powerful people saying well okay i didn't see that it's making me see things differently um, so the idea is they see different things they see things differently the leaders are doing different things and doing things differently as a result, you know. And it's a nice, it's not lovely because one, one woman said, this is the most awful, disruptive, amazing <laughs> experience I've ever had. It's meant to shake you up. It's meant to make you go back to the foundations, your beliefs, figure out what you don't know that you don't know, figure out what you need to unlearn. And I know unlearning is controversial apparently. Um, and then build no, really. on that action. You first have to deconstruct your beliefs before you act. Because otherwise, what, do you act, what, what actions are you taking? If you haven't gone back to basics, what do I really know? What do I believe? Um, and it's very disruptive because, you know, you have leaders saying, I thought I was a virtuous being. I thought I was, yeah. I was, I'm good, right? Um, and then they're having to rethink all of that. Yeah. So I would say find somebody to reverse mentor you. Reverse mentoring, all right, beautiful. Michael or Naomi? Who would go first? I think related to reverse mentoring, which I think is an amazing uh, concept and we're already uh, going to establish connections um, from the Netherlands to the UK and maybe across the Atlantic uh, on this because I think, but I think at the core of reverse mentoring is a very easy thing to start doing. Um, which is active listening um, and caring from a position of careless, let me put it that way. And that seems a very sort of obvious thing to say, 
Um, but active listening also means that you do not assume anything, not even yourself. And that's, of course, very hard to do. But I think if you start to practice, it's a practice, something that you need to cultivate. It's not so, that's why it's not a training. You really need to do this work. Try not to assume anything about anyone, but just look at them. It allows people for self-determination, which then also can change per day. And I think um, uh, I also am taught by, for instance, students who are non-binary and sometimes are feminine presenting and sometimes male presenting in class. And they would go, today I'm he. <laughs> and then, nope, today I'm they. <laughs> and it's, and I, I love that because it, it, that, that fluidity, I mean, we work with it in our research, but actually see it happen is like, oh, this opens up so much possibilities. Um, and to go with that and understand that you, you might not know, you, not, you might not be able to read someone, allow someone to tell their own story before you start reading them, listen to them. And I think that, and then also be accountable if you've really listened, be accountable to them, being open to them to call you out. And call you out doesn't, I mean, we all make mistakes, but then allow, uh, just go like, okay, I'm trying. Show that you're trying and use that language, that inclusive language, which is not a lexicon. It's, it's really a practice of building a new language together through which you can communicate and understand each other at that moment. But don't take that moment as a given for eternity. It will change, mm. including yourself. Nice. All right. Then we have a last but not least. What is the, the yeah, big tip I, to add to this? I'm I'm trying to gather, gather my, my my thoughts. I have been hearing reverse mentoring. I have been hearing this term since since um, for the last few days, and mm. I am like I was too embarrassed to ask because I've heard people say it with a lot of intentional knowledge. I've heard it. Oh, the reverse mentor. And I thought, oh, well, they know exactly what that is. Should I know exactly what that is? I, I don't know that I know what that is. Thank you for asking this question. <laughs> I think it is um, a ph phenomenal. I don't know anybody who would hear that and say, um, could I steal that? Um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think the thing that I'm excited about at the University of Connecticut in particular is the work that we will step into this this coming fall that tries to intimate a little bit of this which which is the 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 implementation of racial healing circles and i will say th this is important because um and it, it was a learning experience for me we had a president who mandated that each unit, academic and non-academic unit, create DEI uh, committees, strategies, DEI champions, things of that nature, and people immediately stepped in that space in, uh, in, in order to do that. What I didn't understand at that time that I clearly understand now is that, you know, you, you can have this kind of system in place and create things that appear to challenge the system, but you, you've created them to exist within the system. And so you're not changing anything. And then, you know, the people who are involved, some of the people who are involved, especially people of color who are involved, will say, well, wait a minute. This, this entity is doing things that is harming us. It's not, it's not, how did that happen, right? So, you know, good intentions are, are nice, but they have nothing to do 
you know, with the work that needs to be done. And the intention of the healing circles is actually do the pre-work that should have led to those kind of strategies and committees and people, you know, doing that work because you have to actually understand who you are in that space, what you bring into that space with some honesty and authenticity so that people understand um, what it is we need to do to, um, to affect that in a positive way right? Versus we're going to create something that skips along the surface of the pond mm. and then falls to the bottom. So I'm really excited about these conversations. Um, I, I don't know how they will work or not work, but it is an attempt to go back to the core necessary conversations that need to, that need to happen before you step into that, into that work. There's so much that ha- has happened in this conference, so many conversations in this conference that really feel like they have taken me back to like the, the, the core foundational conversations and, and understandings that are necessary, you know, to be, to be in this space. And I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, but the reverse mentoring is the jam. All right. <laughs> so beautiful. I really want to thank you all. Um, on behalf of this program, on behalf of echo, obviously as well. Um, uh, and, and also on behalf of the listeners that are able to join this conversation for that reason in a different way, um, sharing your, your inspiration and your experience and your insights and your knowledge with us is, is beautiful. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the program. Thank you for thank having you. us. Appreciate you. <laughs> thank you very much.